If you have your Bible with you this morning, you can begin opening to the Old Testament book of Nahum. Open, swipe, click, whatever it may be. We are returning this morning to a series we began a few weeks ago. Uh, I've entitled God at the Mic. And uh, what we are essentially doing is a single sermon parachute drop into each of the 12 minor prophets to hear God speak to us through his word in the same way that he spoke to his people in the Old Testament in Israel. Um, Typically, when you are hearing from the prophets in the Old Testament, major or minor prophets, um, there are a few themes that we sort of expect to show up. And um, among those oftentimes is God calling out the nation of Israel or even the nations at large, calling out their sin uh, and and pointing out that, that these things are wrong And we see all the more clearly, we see a a reality and a message of God's judgment, punishment, very real consequences for sin. And the the book of Nahum, the very short book of Nahum is no exception. And so it is a very sobering book in as much as all 12 of the minor prophets are sobering in their word to us and we ought to take them seriously. Uh, But let me also say at the same time, if this is your first Sunday, uh, we do not uh, preach doom and gloom sermons every Sunday and look for the deepest, darkest, worst, uh, hardest, scariest, uh, most threatening fire and brimstone moments in Scripture and preach them every Sunday. However, it is important for us to recognize that when we see in both Old Testament and news the reality of, of the bad news of sin, it actually makes us understand, appreciate, and run to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is hope, that there is salvation, that there is new life, that, that old patterns and sins can be broken and we can experience real life in Jesus Christ. And so we need to hear the reality of both this morning. Uh, I would imagine as well that most of us are familiar with the Old Testament city of Nineveh. And we probably have heard of the city of Nineveh because of another minor prophet whose name is... Jonah, right? We know about Jonah, we know about the whale, and somehow they're related to Nineveh. Uh, This is the other minor prophet who comes and and speaks, preaches a word, a prophetic word of warning to the same city of Nineveh. But I'll bet for many of you, you will not recall this story in quite the same way you recall Jonah and the big fish. So let's begin. I'm going to read to us uh, Nahum chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 as our primary text this morning from Scripture. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Nahum 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. How are you doing so far? Good? Okay. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him the world, and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. 
but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together and thank God for his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for absolutely everything. We thank you for your word that is inerrant and infallible and teaches us everything that we need for life and godliness. Father, we come before you humbly today and desire to hear from you, to learn from you. God, we are grateful that not only are you a God of justice, but you are also a God of mercy. And we thank you that you do both perfectly. We thank you for the coming of your son, Jesus Christ. And it is to you that we look this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, If I had a title for this sermon, it would be this. I'm slow to anger, but now I'm angry. And so as we walk through Nahum here this morning, uh, I want us to see three realities that apply today as we consider both God's justice and God's mercy. The first is this, and these come very clearly right from our passage this morning. Number one, the Lord is jealous, avenging, and wrathful. The Lord is jealous, avenging, and wrathful. We see this in verses one through six, and then again in verse eight. And this reality, let me read to us verse two here again, just to to hear the way that the prophet Nahum forms his words for us. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Uh, In case you were not clear yet from God's word, God is not just our warm fuzzy. God is not a vending machine where you go up and if you hit the right buttons, then he will give you what you want. God is not subject to our imagination, our preferences, our ideas of what we think that God ought to be. No, no. God is God. God is perfect. God is holy. God is just. In every character quality that God has, he does them perfectly, always without error. And so what Nahum does here right at the very beginning of his word is he gives us three reasons here why God is going to ultimately destroy the unrepentant, and that's important, the unrepentant city of Nineveh. He says God is jealous. If we go back to the giving of the Ten Commandments, the first time that that Old Testament Israel gets the Ten Commandments is in Exodus chapter 20. And the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the reason he gives is actually a promise that comes right before the command. The, The commands, the law is given in the context of relationship. God says, for I am the Lord, your God. This is jealousy on display. The second commandment, God says, you shall not make a carved or a graven image and worship it. And so there's this instruction against idolatry in any form. And the, the reason that God gives in the very next verse is he says, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now you may go, wait, wait, hold on a second. I thought jealousy was bad. I thought jealousy was a sin. And I say to you from scripture, sometimes, sometimes jealousy is a sin. If we understand the reality of jealousy like envy and recognize where we see it in our lives and in scripture as me having a strong desire for something that is not mine and that is somebody else's. Uh, We have another commandment that says, do not covet. It's that same desire that I'm wanting what someone else has. That is sin. That is wrong. 
God cannot and will not ever be jealous in a sinful way. But God and we actually, in fact, can demonstrate a jealousy that is holy. And it happens this way. When we desire to see a a covenant faithfulness within a relationship that is ours. Covenant faithfulness within a relationship that is ours. For example, I am jealous for my wife and for my children. And the, the reality even deeper behind that is that I am theirs and they are mine. And God is saying very much the same thing about his people, Israel, and about you today, his church. I am theirs and they are mine. I am jealous for my people. God is faithful. God is caring. God is protective. God will not give you up is the idea here. And so he not only offers this covenant faithfulness, he also commands covenant faithfulness from us in response. Then Nahum says that that God is an avenging and wrathful God. Now the word vengeance is retaliatory punishment for doing wrong. The key here is that wickedness, evil, bad stuff has been done and God is responding in a way that is good and is right. Genesis 18.25 says, the God of all the earth will do right. Now, again, we will sometimes in our humanness, will sort of have this knee-jerk reaction. We go, I don't like that. That doesn't seem entirely fair. But we have a very skewed understanding of fair, don't we? Part of the reason that we react against God's justice is because we are highly desensitized to our own sin and the sin of others around us. Because the reality is is that God's justice is always fair. And the even greater and better reality is that God doesn't treat us fair. He treats us better than fair. When we experience God's grace and God's mercy through Jesus, we get what is better than what we deserve, better than what is fair. That's why the Bible here, even in this passage of judgment, says that God is slow to anger and that he will not leave the guilty unpunished. God will not leave the guilty unpunished because to do so would be wrong. It would be evil itself. God has the authority that you and I do not have to bring vengeance and wrath, which is why in the New Testament, Paul gives us actually this encouraging command, Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And here with Nahum and with Nineveh, we're seeing that reality played out. The third little reason that we are given here that God says that he is going to destroy Nineveh is actually out of his goodness for his people. God is jealous. God is avenging and wrathful. And God is good to his people. Verse 7 and verse 8 tell us this. Uh, Israel, for centuries at this point, has been abused by Nineveh. But God is good. If you find yourself going through difficult circumstances and you are the recipient of someone else's evil, know that the promise is that God is good. He is a refuge to those who trust in him in any and all circumstances, and God will take care of it. If we look ahead, Nahum chapter 2, verse 13, there's sort of a punchline that that matches up with Nahum chapter 3, verses 19. I put them together for you. Here's sort of the punch of Nahum 2 and 3. God says to Nineveh, I am against you. 
And that's a powerful statement, isn't it? I am against you. And why, as he continues to give the reasons, at the very end there, 319, he says, for who has not felt your endless cruelty? When we experience injustice in this life of any sort, when we, when we see evil out of control, whether it's children who are abused or people who are suffering and hurting, when we see stealing and cheating and lying in our culture and other cultures here and around the world, when we see murder, when we see persecution of believers, when we see satanic, demonic powers at work, we can remember that evil has not and will not ever win. Jesus has already one, and not only so, evil will not go unpunished. A promise for God's people and a terror for those who will resist him. The name Nahum, his, his very name, it translates comfort. His word means comfort, comfort to the oppressed, comfort to God's people that he will bring an F end to suffering at the hands of evil, unrepentant people. See, God's, God's judgment for wickedness and rebellion goes hand in hand with his promise of salvation for his people. To put it another way, Nahum's prophecy here in the Old Testament is a foretaste of the reality of what Jesus Christ would come and would do one day. They looked forward and we look back to Jesus coming and bringing the ultimate defeat of sin and salvation to his people, to everyone who will trust in the name of Jesus. Number two, we see in verse three, if we can dig a little bit deeper in the first part of verse three, it says that the Lord is slow to anger and will not leave the guilty unpunished. Nahum chapter one, verse three, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So if you are still struggling this morning with the idea of God's justice and how or, or why would God do these things, give you a little bit more of a picture of life in Nineveh's world. Genesis chapter 10, verse 11, all the way back to the beginning, tells us that the city of Nineveh was actually established by a guy named Nimrod. If you are trying to pick a name for your son, have a name child yet? Let me just suggest Nimrod to you. Great name. Nimrod built... Um, both the city of Nineveh and its buddy city down the road, Babylon. Now, you may not know a lot about Nineveh and a lot about Babylon, but they're both definitely on the naughty list for all time. Um, uh, Genesis says that Nimrod was the first mighty warrior on the earth. It says that he was a tyrant responsible for the first world empire of seven cities, among them Babylon and Nineveh. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary says this about both Babylon and Nineveh, and I, I thought this was helpful. He says, Nineveh became the embodiment of human violence and conquest. Babylon stands for the warfare of man against God. We see that throughout the Old and New Testament. Nineveh stands for the warfare of man against his fellow human beings, and we'll see that at play here as well. So if we can connect some, some biblical and historical dots here for a second, there are two nations that send God's people, Israel and Judah, into exile and into destruction. They were Babylon in 587 BC and Assyria in 722 BC. Guess what the capital of Assyria is called? Nineveh. Okay, so the two chief human enemies of God's people throughout their history have always been Babylon and Assyria, whose capital is Nineveh. Uh, King Shalmaneser III, 
also a great name. In the 800s BC, made an obelisk uh, that now today sits in the British Museum, and on it is King Jehu of Israel on his knees begging before King Shalmaneser III. King Shalmaneser IV ended the history of Israel, as I mentioned, in 722 BC and carried away exactly 27,290 people. So go all the way back, 722 BC. Israel would not be recognized as a nation again until 1948, three years after World War II. So from that moment when Nineveh crushes Israel, they have no identity as a nation until our generations here today. Then there was King Sennacherib who tried to do the same thing to the southern kingdom of Judah. He sends a nasty letter to the king of Judah at the time whose name was Hezekiah, maybe a king that you recognize. And King Hezekiah takes this nasty threatening letter in which basically Sennacherib says, the gods of Assyria are better than the God of Israel. Dangerous thing to say. And King Hezekiah takes this letter that he receives from Sennacherib, and the Bible says that he spread it out on the altar before God in the temple and prayed and called on all of Israel to pray. And that very night, God responded and wiped out, the angel of the Lord, the Bible says, wiped out 180,000 Assyrians who came to destroy Judah. But as we continue on, we'll see that Sennacherib went home and continued to build the city of Nineveh into the biggest, greatest, most powerful city on earth uh, at that time. And Nineveh probably has the distinction of being the city with more cruelty, more violence uh, than any other group of people uh, recorded in human history. Nahum calls Nineveh uh, the city of blood in his book. He is not kidding. Um, There is another monument made by a king by the name of Ashurbanipal II, and on his monument, he's describing his victories and all the wonderful things that he's done. And, And among the great things that Ashurbanipal did for society, it says, I cut down my enemies with the sword, flayed them, cut off their heads, and spread their skin upon the city walls. Sorry to be PG-13, but just so you get a picture. Another place, he says, 3,000 captives, I burned them, men and women, cut off their fingers, noses, ears, and put out their eyes. Nahum 3 in the scripture says that Nineveh even dashed their enemies' infants to pieces in the streets. For centuries, the people of Nineveh plundered the nations of the world. They worshipped demonic powers and engaged in all kinds of witchcraft and sorcery, and God did not leave Nineveh unpunished. We know that in the year 612 BC, 90 years after Sennacherib's nasty letter to Hezekiah that he wanted to conquer Judah, the most powerful city in the world was overthrown, never to be inhabited again. Historians will point to things like internal corruption and the rise of Babylon as reasons for Nineveh's demise, and they're not wrong, but we can see from Scripture that there is a deeper answer, and it's given by the prophet Nahum 250 years before it ever happens, during a time when Nineveh was at the height of its power, and anybody who would say that Nineveh is going down would have been thought crazy. And isn't that so often the way that we react to God when he is speaking? We see the reality that it is the avenging wrath and the jealous love of a holy and righteous and good God that brought Nineveh to its knees. 
The Bible says here in verse 8 that there would be an overwhelming flood that will make an end to Nineveh. According to secular accounts, during the final siege of Nineveh, there was an unusually heavy amount of rain that actually caused the Tigris River to flood, and the outer 100-foot wall around Nineveh crumbled, allowing the Babylonian and Scythian armies to enter and destroy the inhabitants of the city. The Bible says God will pursue his enemies into darkness. Nineveh was never rebuilt. Assyria and their history end right there. They didn't even find the ruins of Nineveh until the 1840s. And to this day, you can go over, it is in the middle of Mosul, Iraq, are the few fragments left over from the nation, the city of Nineveh. But here's the truth. Not just Nineveh. We all, every single person from all time, we all stand before God as sinners. We all stand before God guilty. The Bible says even one sin would disqualify us from the standard of perfection, and who among us can claim that we've sinned only once? Uh, You may say, you may think, well, my sin's not that bad. I've never flayed anyone and hung their skin on the wall. My, My record of gouging out eyes remains intact. And that is great, but it does not mean that we do not stand before a God uh, of holiness guilty. And this is the way that we think, right? My sin's not as bad as that other guy, or uh, it's not a personal problem. It's, it's just a societal problem. It's a class problem. The problem is out there, but not in here or, or in here. But the Bible tells us a different story. We can deceive ourselves with the language of, well, my good deeds sort of outweigh my bad deeds, so I'm probably okay, Um, as long as I'm a nice person, or we go with the, my sins aren't that bad. Yes, I do bad things, but it's not, it's not hurting anyone, which is also not true. But these are the things that we tell ourselves. Listen to the truth of the word of God. Romans chapter three, again, Paul teaching us through this great book says this in Romans 3, 10 through 18, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing, curses, and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Nineveh turned away from the one true God, And so have we. There's no difference there. Nineveh lied. So have we. Nineveh killed the innocent. Guys, so have we. Nineveh was filled with bitterness and cursing, and so are we. Nineveh stopped acknowledging God for who he is. So do we. And the Bible says here, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And we should understand that it is a terrible thing to have the God of the universe say, I am against you. It's a sobering reality. And he speaks these words, not just to Nineveh, but to to all who have sinned. So he's not just saying these things to Nineveh. He's saying them to people who live in New York. He's not just saying these things to people who live in Babylon. He's saying these things even to people who live in Palm Bay. I know it's crazy. 
but we all stand guilty before God. And so we, we have to address the, the elephant in the room, which is what do we do? In the New Testament, there was a man in Acts who, who looked at Paul and Silas and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Number three, the Bible says here, even in a passage about judgment, that is probably one of the most harsh judgment-only sort of passages, verse seven, that the Lord is good and the guilty can find refuge in him. I have good news for you today. The Lord is good and you can find refuge in him today. Nahum 1.7, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So, Think Nineveh one more time. Remember that other story with that other prophet, that other guy, Nineveh and and Jonah, right? Jonah goes to Nineveh. And Nineveh then, several hundred years before Nahum, was guilty of the same sins that they were guilty of with Naaman. But in that moment, when Jonah preached a call to repentance and told them that God would forgive them if they would turn to him, they responded in repentance. Imagine that. An entire city of untold thousands, maybe millions. I don't know what the population was, but the Bible says from the king on down that they repented in that generation and turned back to God. And that in itself, the Bible says that that's why Jonah didn't want to preach to them because he knew that God would forgive them. He knew that God was also a God of grace and compassion and Jonah didn't want them to experience grace and forgiveness. You ever been there? Ooh, that person... I don't want them to experience grace and mercy. Jonah knew that God would forgive them. And he knew what you and I know today, which is God still forgives sinners who are guilty before him every single day. He delights to do so. So no matter what you've done, you come in this morning, you say, you don't know the things that I've done. No matter how many times you've done those things, no matter how bad you think those things are, no matter far, how far you have wandered away from God, you still have an invitation from the God of the universe to find refuge and salvation and hope and new life in him. It is a promise from Old and New Testament. And so the reality here again is don't wait Run to God and find refuge in him. Listen to how the Old Testament explains to us. God is not just a God. We we make this error if we think God is just a God of justice or if we think, well, God is just a God of mercy. Here's the reality. God does both perfectly every single day. Listen to Exodus chapter 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Here's our phrase, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. uh, Jim, if you'll back up in our slides, I skipped a scripture that I wanted to point out to us. That phrase, the Lord is slow to anger. In the New Testament, in 2 Peter, the Bible picks up this same phrase, the same reality. Listen to 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So there is this opportunity. God is saying, come to me and experience salvation and forgiveness. It doesn't mean that judgment doesn't exist. It means that God does both perfectly. Look at the very next verse, 2 Peter 3, 
Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So where, with whom can I find refuge? The Bible is clear, Old Testament leading us into the new, that you can find refuge under the cross of Jesus Christ. There is a shelter in one, and his name is Jesus, and that shelter took place in the moment that Jesus went to the cross on your behalf. See, there is one who lived on this earth who is unlike any other that ever did or ever will live. There is one who came to this earth willingly, born of a virgin, lived the perfect life with no sin, never committed injustice, never spoke an evil word, never had an evil action. And then willingly gave up his throne in heaven to die on a cross, knowing that he would take the punishment for the sins of all those who believe in him. There is a shelter, and his name is Jesus. There is a place of comfort, and it is at the cross. And so Jesus himself says again this morning, come to me. Come to me in Matthew 11, bring all of your your heaviness, all of your labors, and, and lay it down at the foot of the cross where I have solved your sin problem. There is deliverance and there is freedom found at the cross. And understand this reality. How how great is God's love? Well, think about it. What what have you contributed to your salvation? Just your sin? Just your need? We simply come to him in faith and we put our trust and our faith in what he has done. And Jesus says, I'll take the punishment for you. I will take the consequences. The, the only one who could do anything about it did everything about it for you and I. So that if you are in Christ, if you have asked Jesus to be your, your savior, save me from my sins. I want you to be Lord of my life. You're in charge now, God, not, not me. I'm repenting. I'm turning away from sin and I'm, I'm turning to you. I trust you. Realize that that your judgment day that the Bible talks about will happen one day, that your judgment day has already happened. Your judgment day has already happened because there was a day that Jesus went to a very real cross and died for your very real sins. And three days later, he literally rose from the dead. If you are in Christ this morning, if you have asked him to be your savior, then your judgment day is in the past because someone else took it for you. What a gift, utterly undeserved. And in humility and in love, I would say to you, if you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you hear the warning and you hear the joyous promise from Scripture. Come to him. Ask him today to be your Lord and your Savior. Let your punishment and judgment be handed over to the one who willingly says, I will take it for you. Come to me, know me, follow me. That's why we celebrate Christmas. In the Old Testament, they look forward to that moment that a Savior would come. And now here in the New Testament, we look back on that moment that the Savior of the world has come. Praise God. Let's pray together.